0: Welcome to the Redeemer podcast. For more information about Redeemer Church, visit makingmuchofjesus.org. We hope you enjoy the talk and invite you to visit us next Sunday at either our 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. service. And uh, for the second year in a row, I get the privilege of preaching the last sermon of the year. So, uh, you know, coming with the, with the last sermon of the year always comes with this kind of a, this anticipation of the new year, right? I mean, we're what, three or four days away from, from New Year's Eve, and so as I was pondering what to speak on today, and I, you know, I started thinking to myself, you know, what, what is it that we really mean when we say, Happy New Year? And you'll, be, you'll, you'll hear it and say it dozens of times over the next few days, right? And I think, as I thought about it, I thought, you know, I think what we mean typically is if we wish someone a Happy New Year, we're saying... We hope that you have maybe good health, increased wealth, comfort, avoidance of stuff like happened in Dallas last night, um, good relationships. I mean, that sounds like a pretty happy year, right? Except that, you know, my 54 years of life experience have taught me that, that those things don't necessarily equate to a happy new year. I mean, for example, I've, I've, known, I've known multiple people who were pictures of health, had crazy amounts of money, um, seemed to live a pretty comfortable life, but they were anything but happy. And then I think of others, like, like our own sweet little Kelly Tadaro, you know, who's, who suffers, who has terrible health. She's, she's going through crazy struggles. You know, Tataros are rolling in money. And yet she radiates a joy that encourages me every time I'm around her. So that kind of led me to, to ponder the question that as, as Christians, what should we mean when we wish people a happy new year? And that led me to our text today, which uh, I think it will be familiar to most of us. But my prayer is that that God will allow to see this very familiar passage with new eyes today as the true key to a happy new year. So I'd ask that you, if you have your Bibles, open with me to Matthew 5, book of Matthew, chapter 5, and we're going to start with verse 1 and read through verse 12. In honor of the reading of God's word, I would ask that you stand with me while I I read. Matthew 5, 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, As we come to an end of another year and the anticipation of another, I, God, I first want to thank you for the many blessings of 2015. God, each of us here have so much to be thankful for. And we acknowledge that you and you alone are the giver of all good things in our life. So it's with grateful hearts that we say thank you. God, as we enter a new year, we ask that you once again refocus our eyes on you. Would you align our hearts and desires with yours so that we truly can have a happy new year and one that is not contingent on any of life's circumstances? God, would you open our eyes to behold wondrous things from your law? In the holy name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So, before we dig into the passage today, I want to first uh, make some general observations to kind of frame the message as a whole. The first general observation is this. If you're not already aware, the word blessed in this passage can literally be translated as happy. It means the same thing. So um, you could replace the word happy with all of those and it makes sense. And thus, the connection between the source of a truly happy new year. The second observation I'd like to make is that as we go through this, I want you to keep in mind that these are not a la carte items that you can kind of pick and choose from. One of the things I realized as I studied these is that they are in a very intentional and sequential order. You have to start with the first one before you can experience the second, and so on. And then the third observation is this, is that while they are sequential, they are not exclusive of each other. And by that mean, I mean they're not like a video game, that where you you complete level one and you know and then you finish level one and a, and a little maiden runs out and pulls a flag up the hill and then you go on to level two. Right? Um, I just dated myself, didn't I? Um, <laughs> no, they 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 build on each other. You finish level one and then you can add level two. It's kind of it's kind of like of a think of it more like an eight layer lasagna. I mean, which would you rather have a three-layer lasagna or eight-layer lasagna? Not even a question, right? And when you eat lasagna, you don't. Would you rather like eat one layer and then go to the next layer and then go to the next layer, or would you rather kind of like stack them all on top of each other and then have this big wonderful concoction of of cheese and noodles and cheese and cheese and noodles and I'm, I'm a cheesehead. I'm from Wisconsin. Uh, <laughs> that's that's lasagna, right? Of course. And, and, and that's the principle of the Beatitudes. You don't finish a layer and move on to the next one. As each layer continues to grow, you add additional layers on top. And with each layer, your happiness and your joy grows. So with that framework, let's dig into our text. Um, beginning in verse 3, we see the foundational key to a happy new year. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I understand that some of you may be thinking, "Sorry, you lost me at poor," um, and I get it. Right? I mean, if this if we were doing word association, um, and I said poverty, most of you aren't going to yell out happy. And that that's one of the crazy things about scripture is that that there's so many things that seemingly don't make sense until. Until you experience them. So I think the first thing we need to do is make sure that we unpack what it means to be poor in spirit. And what I can tell you is this has nothing to do with financial poverty. But everything to do with acknowledging that we are spiritually bankrupt. Bankrupt. You see, coming to a saving knowledge of Christ is the first step to any kind of true happiness, and that cannot happen until we realize our helplessness before God. In Isaiah 66, two, it says this, But this is the one whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. And in Mark 2:17 Jesus said, "Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners." So you see, being poor in spirit is the first key to true happiness because it's the heart of what scripture calls the good news. That God has made a way through Christ becoming a man, living a sinless life, qualifying him and him alone to pay the penalty for our sins through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. He conquered sin and death, and he offers us his righteousness if we will acknowledge our sin, or in other words, become poor in spirit. Now, I know that... uh, I would guess that Ephesians 2 is, may very well be the most quoted scripture that we have at this, at this church. Um, but that's probably because it's the, I think is the most clear and powerful proclamation of the gospel in all of scripture. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked By grace, you have been saved. That's the gospel, the greatest news in the history of the world. But you see, being poor in spirit is not something that you become. It's something that only by God's grace you realize that you already are. I mean, Jesus tells us in the book of John that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. God has graciously made many of us here aware of the astronomical debt that we have before a holy God and our utter poverty and inability to make even a minuscule payment towards that debt. And if you're here today, and for the first time sometime during today, God begins to open your eyes to see that you start to see the unpayable debt of your sin, then rejoice. Because you are becoming poor in spirit. And you've taken the first step to a truly happy new year. And that leads to level two. Verse four tells us that blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Again, if we're playing the word association, gang, if I say mourned, you're probably not going to say happy. But our text clearly says that that is the next key to true happiness. Of course, the context of the passage makes it clear, we're not talking about mourning the death of someone you love. That would be silly. It's talking about the mourning of your sins. Scripture calls this Repentance. Now remember, I told you, this was not, these are not a la carte items that you can just kind of randomly pick and choose from. You see, you can't, you can't mourn sins that you haven't acknowledged yet. Or in the spirit of Ephesians 2, dead people don't mourn. But by the grace of God, once he makes you aware of your sin and depravity, He then, then he gives us the gift of mourning and repenting of our sins. And the awesome news is the scripture tells us that when we do that, in 1 John 1, 9, he says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. A beautiful picture of this in scripture is found in Psalm 32, where David says, Blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man whom God counts no iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. Now, I think it's important here that we make sure that we clarify the full meaning of repentance. Because, you see, true repentance is not not reluctantly saying sorry like you did when you were a kid in trouble and you're trying to get out of the punishment. And we do that as adults, but that's not mourning. It's manipulation. One of my favorite definitions of repentance um, is by a guy named Paul Tripp, who, uh, who defines repentance as this. Repentance is a radical change of heart resulting in a radical change in the direction of one's life. A radical change of heart resulting in a radical change in the direction of one's life. You see, the happiness that comes from mourning sin is not in the mourning itself, but it's in the change that the mourning process produces. Or 2 Corinthians 5 puts it, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, a new creation has come. The old is gone and the new is here. That is evidence of true repentance. And remember, I told you that these steps were not like like levels of a video game that you complete and move on to the next level. Mourning, sin, and repentance are not a one and done event. It's a lifestyle that marks you till the day you die. Probably a lot of you in here have heard of, uh, no Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King, the first one. Um, The guy who famously nailed his 95 theses on the door of the Wittenberg Castle on October 31st, 1517. And this is not a sermon on the 95 theses, but I will tell you that the very first thesis of the 95 is this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. That was the foundation of the Protestant Revolution, Refor- revolution. Reformation. And it's still the foundation of the life of a believer today. You see life, a life of repentance doesn't eradicate sin from our lives. But what it does is it radically changes how we respond to sin. We no longer nurture sin or celebrate sin or organize praise to honor sin pride days. No, we mourn sin. We kill sin. We confess sin. And we flee from sin. And when we understand this, We're ready to add level three. Level three. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Once again, I say meek, you probably don't say happy. But scripture does. And I think the reason we don't associate meekness with happiness is because we don't really understand what meekness is. You see, if if I asked you to visualize a meek person probably right now, the image that a lot of you have in mind is probably someone who is timid, maybe shy, weak, indecisive, avoids conflict, or what some might call a wuss. But that's not what Scripture thinks of in terms of meekness. You see, in my... uh, I took a biblical counseling class this fall. There's a few of us here who did. And and, and during that class, I don't remember if I heard it or read it or sometime during that class, I I read a definition that that forever changed my view of meekness. It defined meekness as this, being completely under the control of something more powerful than you. So to help you visualize this, I want to personalize an illustration that I heard Matt Chandler use one time. You guys see me up here. I'm a, I'm a 54-year-old, slightly overweight grandpa who, who runs like a grandpa. <laughs> I Unlike J.J. Watt, who has a vertical leap of, what, six feet? Mine's maybe six inches. On, a, on my best day, I can do exactly zero pull-ups, And um, I couldn't bench press the bench, probably. But you know what? All I have to do is go over to Bush Airport and get a ticket that allows me inside of a Boeing 737, (coughs) sit back, enjoy the flight, and within moments, I have a vertical of 30,000 feet, and I'm moving at 600 miles an hour. In other words, I am faster than a speeding bullet, more powerful than a locomotive, and I can leap over tall buildings in a single bound. Why? Because I am completely under the control of something far more powerful than me. And that is a picture of meekness. In God's eyes, a meek person is anything but a wuss because they are completely under the control of an almighty God, the maker of heaven and earth. Here's a few examples of how scripture portrays weakness. From Psalms, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. From Isaiah, have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is an everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary. And young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles, and they shall run and not weary. They shall walk and not faint. Paul describes meekness like this in 2 Corinthians. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Why? For when I am weak, then I am strong. And finally, I love this this quote by Charles Spurgeon describing meekness. Those who serve God must serve him in his own way and in his strength, or he will never accept their service. That which man doth, unaided by divine strength, God can never own. The mere fruits of the earth he casteth, casteth away, He will only reap that corn, the seed of which was sown from heaven, watered by grace and ripened by the Son of divine love. God will empty out all that thou hast before he will put his own into thee. He will first clean out thy granaries before he will fill them with the finest of wheat. The river of God is full of water, but not one drop of it flows from earthly springs. God will have no strength used in his battles, but his strength, which he himself imparts. Are you mourning over your weakness? Take courage, for there must be a consciousness of weakness before the Lord will give thee victory. Your emptiness is but the preparation for your being filled, and your casting down is but the making ready for your lifting up. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, if you're just experiencing these three levels of happiness, you already have everything you need to have a wonderful 2016. But we still got five levels to go. So let's buckle up. You see, once Christ begins to saturate every pore of your being, you will naturally begin to add level four. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Now you see, I think it's level three and four where most Christians hit the wall. And they never really experience the full joy of the Christian life. You see, 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that all Scripture is breathed up by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So therefore, I don't think that you can hunger and thirst for righteousness without first hungering and thirsting for Scripture. And I can't tell you how many people that when you ask them how their Scripture reading is going, the typical response is something like, well, you know, uh, well, I, I, I'm just not that much of a reader. Or, I don't know, you know, the scripture, just, scripture just doesn't make sense to me. Or if you ask them about memorizing Scripture, whoa, that's usually the response like, whoa, I can't do that. You know, I, I, I don't have a good memory. You talk about prayer life, and usually the response is like, well, you know, I, ugh, I'm just not good at that. Or, you know, I, I just have a really hard time focusing enough to pray. Or, you know, with any spiritual discipline, the most common excuse you hear is, well, you know, I'm, I'm just really busy right now. This is not a good time in life. I just don't, I don't know how to fit it all in. I, I, I'll focus on when life slows down a little bit. I'm meddling now a little bit, aren't I? Let me tell you something. If you, if you were to put a cockroach on a platter in front of me right now and dare me to eat it, I can tell you that I will not hesitate one second to let you know that there is absolutely zero chance that thing is going in my mouth. You know why? I'm not that hungry. <laughs> but you know what? I have a feeling that if you locked me in a room for two weeks with no access to any food or drink, and then after two weeks you slipped a plate of cockroaches under the door, there's probably a pretty good chance I'm putting those things down like a Cajun-eating crawfish. (laughs) <laughs> now, now let me be very, very, very clear here. I am in no way intending to equate reading Scripture to eating cockroaches. <laughs> let the record make that clear. But what I am saying is if you're not consistently reading and memorizing God's Word, and if your prayer life is, is rote at best and non-existent at worst, then hear me, it's not because you're incapable or don't have enough time. It's because you aren't hungry. And the reason you're not hungry is probably because your spiritual dining looks a lot like the way most of us eat at our favorite Mexican restaurant where we we eat our weight in chips so that when the sizzling fajitas come out or the carne asada, you're not even hungry for it anymore. So if you really want to enjoy a great Mexican meal, try bypassing the chips. And if you really want to taste and see that the Lord is good, Stop filling up on the greasy chips of of sports pages or the Wall Street Journal or social media or romance novels or movies or TVs or, or whatever it is that is satisfying you now more than God's word does. And start praying for a hunger for righteousness so that you can say like Jeremiah, your words were found and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and a delight of my heart. Or like David who said, oh, God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Imagine the joy when we hunger and thirst for righteousness like that. And my guess is we can all increase our joy this year by increasing our hunger and thirst for righteousness, right? And as you grow in this level, you're now ready to experience what I call phase two of gospel joy and happiness. You see, phase one is the first four verses in which you are, you notice everything there, you're being saturated and being filled with Christ. It's God coming into you. And then in phase two, you experience a whole nother level of happiness When out of the abundance of the first four, Christ starts to overflow out of you and onto those around you. You start to be like what Christ says right after the Beatitudes where where he talks about salt and light. This is where your light, you can let your light so shine before others that they see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Verse 7 Says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, Webster defines mercy as kind or forgiving treatment of someone who could be treated harshly. Some would say mercy is letting someone off the hook. Mercy is driving 80 and a 55 with an expired license and getting off with a warning, right? But unfortunately, Mercy is not a natural human instinct. Justice is. And I know this because I'm able to provide for my family by filming depositions because the world is filled with people who want other people to pay dearly for what they feel they've been wronged by. But true happiness is not found in justice, it's found in mercy. In all the hundreds of depositions I've filmed over the years, you know what I've never seen? A happy plaintiff. They're bitter. They're angry. They're vengeful. And even if they win, the happiness is extremely short-lived. But you see, when you begin to really appreciate the incredible mercy that has been shown to you in Christ, then you can't help but show mercy to those who wrong you when you really understand that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life, then you are going to be far less likely to honk at the guy who cuts in front of you. Not that any of you do that. And you won't be bitter to the guy who doesn't pay back the loan you gave him, or the guy who rear-ends your brand-new car, or the client who doesn't honor their contract, Or even the doctor who made a mistake during your surgery. And you see, I've learned that the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is really just Jesus fleshing out the last four Beatitudes. So in verse 39 of chapter 5, Jesus describes mercy like this. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. And do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. And over in chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, he says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. And then one chapter over in in 7, he explains it even further. And he says, judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure that you use it will be measured to you. In other words, he's saying, be careful about wanting justice. Because when you stand before God, the last thing you want is justice. You do not want God to be fair you want him to be merciful. And of course, he sums it all up in chapter 12 of, uh, or verse 12 of chapter 7 when, with what we commonly call the golden rule. So whatever you wish that others would do for you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. We all desire mercy from others, right? And especially from God. So the path to happiness is the path of mercy. And to mercy, we add level six. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now we know if something is pure means that it's, it's, it's of a single substance. If something is made of pure gold, then it's free of anything that's, that's not gold. A purebred dog is one that's One breed only. Jeff has a really cool labradoodle. Not pure. Cool looking, but not pure. A pure heart one is one that is singularly committed and faithful to one object of affection. So you show me a person who comes even close to loving God with all of his heart and with all of his mind and with all of his strength and I will show you a genuinely happy person. You see, having a pure heart towards God is so important that Jesus basically uh, devotes all of chapter 6 of the Sermon on the Mount to it. He sums it up in 19 through 24 when he says, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. and money. Now, it would seem like these are three different ideas going on here, and they're not. Jesus doesn't have ADD, He's communicating the same message. And it, it, it would, I could spend three sermons unpacking all of it. But for purposes of the day, we can summarize it by saying that if you really want to do an audit on the purity of your heart, all you have to do is examine your eyes and your bank account. Closely examine what it is you buy and what it is you're watching and you will know who your heart belongs to. And the choice is simple. It's either God or you. And you just heard, Scripture made it very clear, you cannot be devoted to both. In the first half of chapter 6, Jesus uses examples of prayer, fasting, and and, uh, giving to assess the purity of your heart. So in, in it's a long passage, so, but to, to synthesize it, what he's really saying is if you really want to see if your heart is pure towards God, then all of the good deeds that you do, do them in secret. When you pray, go in your closet. When you fast, do it so no one knows you're fasting. Why? He says because if you, if you do it in public... Then you're doing it to glorify. Then you know who you're. You know who you're, you're devoted to. You're devoted to you. because you want people to, to make notice of how righteous or how spiritual you are. If you want to glorify God, do it in secret, and therefore you can't be glorified. And that's the reward. See, the choice is simple. It's God or you. James addresses the same thing. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. A pure heart is a heart that is single-minded on finding all of its joy and fulfillment in Christ. And to that we add level seven. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called... Sons of God. Jesus fleshes this out in two sections of chapter 5. In verse 23, he says, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. For truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. And then a few verses later in verse 43, he follows it up with, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that, Why? so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. You see, this level of happiness is very near the top because this is where you really start to take on the family resemblance of your heavenly Father. One of the great names that we, that we celebrate for Jesus during this Advent season is that he is the Prince of Peace. You see, we look most like Christ when we are quick to reconcile because that's what Christ came to earth to do, to reconcile God and sinners. We know that we are sons of our Father in heaven when we love our enemies and pray for them because that's what Christ did for us. Well, we were still sinners and enemies of God. He died for us. As you know, some of the last words he spoke on the cross were what? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The Prince of Peace. So if you want to add a rich layer of happiness to your life, live out Romans 12.8. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And if there is evidence. Of these seven attributes in your life, you have everything you need to have a wonderful and happy new year. And when these attributes are visible and function in your life, now and only now are you ready to experience the crown jewel of Christian happiness. Blessed are those who are persecuted. I mean, what two things would seem to go less together than persecution and happiness? Yet he doesn't just say that that persecution brings happiness. He tells us to rejoice and be glad. And that's that's the same message that Paul delivers in Romans 5. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And James echoes the same thing in James 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Persecution produces the highest level of joy because it is what most unites and identifies us with Christ. In the Gospel of John, Jesus tells us, he says, If the world hates you, you know it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And Peter says the same thing in 1 Peter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Church history is, is filled with the voices of martyrs who would attest that persecution is indeed the pinnacle of Christian joy. One such martyr was a guy by the name of Ignatius of Antioch, who was martyred in A.D. 110, and on his impending death, he said this, May I enjoy the wild beasts that are prepared for me. I pray that they would be found eager to rush at me, and I will also entice them to devour me speedily and not deal with me as some whom out of fear they have not touched If they are unwilling to assail me, I will compel them to do so. Pardon me. I know what is my benefit. Listen to this. Now I begin to be a disciple. Let no one of the things visible or invisible prevent me from attaining to Jesus Christ let fire in the cross, let wild beasts, let tearings, breakings, and dislocation of bones, let cutting off of limbs, let shattering of the whole body, and let all the evil torments of the devil come upon me, only let me attain to Jesus Christ. You don't say that unless there is a depth, depth, and richness to your faith underneath that. Without the other six things, you can't say that. And that leads me to my final point. You may have noticed that I didn't talk much about the second half of each beatitude. And the reason is that they, they are what tie all of the beatitudes together. See, if you were to summarize all of the for days. I think it could simply be stated like the, way, like the words of Ignatius of Antioch. For they attain Christ. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They shall inherit the earth, not this earth. They shall see God. They shall be, they shall be called sons of God. They shall receive mercy. All point to the fact that the supreme joy of all believers' life is that we get God. That's what makes the gospel the good news. Heaven isn't heaven because of streets of gold or because we get reunited with our friends and family. I I almost feel a little sad sometimes when people say, Well, I'm just, I'm ready to go to heaven. I want to see my husband or I want to see my, I want to see someone. That's okay. But I'll tell you this, this is heaven for me. I only, want two, I, only, I only have two hopes for heaven. The presence of Jesus and the absence of sin. If I get those two things, the rest is gravy. I love my wife dearly, but Scripture says there's neither marriage nor being married in heaven. I don't know if we're going to recognize each, each other. We may be great friends, I don't know. But I know I get to see Jesus. And I know there's, I'm going to be free of my sin nature. One of the most incredible verses in Scripture to me is Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, which says this. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Do you ever think what joy could be so great that Jesus would be willing to endure the pain and the humiliation of the cross and infinitely worse, endure the full wrath of God in our place? Well, Scripture tells us. It's Revelation 21. This is the joy that was set before him as he hung on the cross. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. That was the joy that was set before Christ. And if the joyful anticipation of this moment drove Jesus to endure all he did on our behalf, church, how much more should we be willing to say for the joy set before us, we endure persecution and ridicule and maybe even death in the midst that we're able to say like Paul in 2 Corinthians, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So as the band and communion attendants come forward, essentially today I have attempted to summarize in a few words the greatest sermon that the world has ever heard. So I want to close it today the same way Jesus did when he finished the Sermon on the Mount, by saying, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it.